Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and, and recognize that what we are to about to look at is your word. We know that. And, and uh, most of us, if not all of us, openly acknowledge that this is the inspired and errant authoritative word of God. But Lord, as we uh, look at your word, sometimes it is... It is hard to believe, and so we need your Holy Spirit to, to take these truths and, and to press them deep into our hearts and our bones and lodge them there so that uh, we may live according to your word, that we may walk by faith and not by sight. And so we ask that you would do your work in our hearts this day. We pray in your name. Amen. Let me ask you, each day when we get up and face another day, what place does Christ play in our lives? As we face another day in our earthly existence, do we humble our hearts under the Lord's hand and recognize His greatness and begin our day with God's glory uppermost in our minds and, and filling our hearts? Well, Maybe not each and every day. We may desire to do that, but we may find temptations, and, and I'm as much uh, like that as, as anyone else in this room. But surely as we come before this text in, in Hebrews chapter 1, it helps us to recognize the unsurpassed greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ as we see Him who is superior even to the holy angels in heaven above. Oh, and the value to, to raise Christ to his rightful place in our thoughts and our affections is not only good, but it is right for us to do. Because as we do that, it is that that, that keeps us from sin and that helps us to see our lives as we ought. And so as we come to our text today, uh, let me ask you this. Where do we put the sun in our thinking and in our hearts, do we see him as the one around whom the universe revolves? And rightly so. Uh, is he the one around whom our personal universe revolves? Is he our all or do we compromise his majesty in all sorts of practical ways? Well, as we think about those things... This passage presents a powerful challenge to our self-centered view of life. And, and even as we looked at the first three verses, we saw Christ as, the, as more glorious than the prophets, fulfilling the word that was delivered to them and the works that they performed. That he is the glorious son. He is the true king. He is our perfect priest. He is the final prophet. And after taking us to the very heights of heaven's revelation of Christ's glory in the first three verses. Then we come to verse four. And, and I don't know about you, but as I read this, it sort of strikes me as somewhat odd. It says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so we see this morning that Christ is more excellent to the angels. But I don't know about you, but as I read that, my first question was, why angels? You know, what does the author, why is he introducing angels at this point 
in the text. And so I want us to just open and sort of look at that this morning before uh, looking at the text. You know, there are, are many different theories that commentators have as to, to why the writer of Hebrews may be addressing this topic of angels. Some uh, recognize that there was some Jewish fascination with angels. I mean, think about it. As you read the Bible, I know as Presbyterians, we don't talk about angels that much. That's to uh, our um, rebuke, I guess. We ought to do that more. But as you look at angels that enter the picture, and this happens throughout Scripture, it would be a fascinating study, um, you see that angels come, and oftentimes in great power, to where those that receive the message from the angels are shaken, you know, even attempted uh, to, to bow down and to worship them at times. And of course, the angels rebuke, uh, would rebuke people when they would do that and tell them not to do so. And, and yet, we see that not only was there a fascination with angels, but there were those in, in the church, in the early church, who were tempted to worship angels. We read that in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 19, as you see sort of this Gnostic uh, uh, view uh, coming and being sort of blended with Judaism. And, and so you see that there were even those who worshipped angels. But as you look at the book of Hebrews, you don't really see evidence that that is the kind of things that, that the writer is addressing in this letter or in this sermon. However, there are various passages in the Bible that do point to how angels in the Old Testament were used by God as messengers to deliver his words to his people, and particularly at Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. Uh, if you want, I can just let me just list out some scriptures that you could write down that you could look up later. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. Deuteronomy 33, 2. Psalm 68, 17. Psalm 68:17, Galatians 3:19. But but one that I'd like to look at this morning is Acts chapter 7 and verse 53. Acts 7:53. I, I actually I'll begin in verse 52 so as to sort of pick up the context of this. We read, "Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute?" And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. It's, it's this uh, giving of the law that I think that's being referred to back in Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse 2 where we read, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. In other words, that the law that was given, and if the law was not kept, then that law uh, received retribution. And so what the writer wants his hearers to understand is that as great as the angels are, even actually more so as great as the law is that the angels um, communicated to man and as mighty as the angels are that delivered that message, Christ is greater. 
He is superior to the angels. And therefore, his message, or the new covenant, is superior to that of the old. And so the writer of Hebrews sets out to show his audience five ways that Jesus is greater than the angels. And, and what's interesting, as he, he makes this argument, he doesn't argue from Jesus' life. He doesn't argue from the scriptures of the New Testament. Um, but instead, he argues from God's revelation from the Old Testament to show that Christ has always been greater than the angels. And so you and I are sort of permitted to listen in and hear the Father speak of the transcendent dignity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we are called to place our faith in that Son this morning as we look at this. So let us look at the ways that Jesus is superior to the angels uh, in verses 4 uh, through 14. First of all, the superior name of the Son. We first of all see the superior name of the Son. Jesus is superior to the angels in the same way that his name is superior to theirs. Now, what is this name that, that the writer of Hebrews is talking about? Well, look at verse 5. It says, for, for which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son? Today, I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so that name, that title that he's referring to is Jesus as the Son of God. And, and the writer here is quoting from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and 2 Samuel seven fourteen. I don't know about if, if you were using the ESV, uh, my translation actually indents every one of the passages that the writer of Hebrews is quoting. And, and if you look at the first chapter of Hebrews, most of it is quotes from the Old Testament. There's actually seven passages of Scripture here that he's using to make five points of different ways that the Son is uh, uh, superior to the angels. And as he quotes Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, uh, God is proclaiming that the Messiah, uh, he, he proclaims the Messiah to be his Son. And he begins by, says, to which of the angels did he ever call them his son? And of course, this is a rhetorical question, so the answer is none, zero. Jesus is superior to the angels because he is the begotten son of God. Now, uh, let me just clarify some things. When it talks about begotten, this doesn't mean that Jesus was created or that he was born in any type of natural or supernatural sense. Uh, we must be clear to state unequivocally that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He didn't become God's Son at some point in time, either before the creation of the world or even since the creation of the world. And there have been some, as they have studied Scripture, that have come to the wrong understanding of this. We must understand that the relationship between the Father and the Son was not a new relationship on earth, but the continuation of the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son in, in heaven. So this doesn't mean that there was a time when Jesus was not divine. He has always been fully God from eternity. Bottom line. Hebrews uh, talks about this. I mean, we looked at this last week in, in chapter 1 and verse 2 of his, div his divinity. We see that he is the representation of the Father. He's the exact imprint, that, that mark, 
John chapter 1 and verse 1 talks about how Jesus is God. And as Hebrews will later indicate, Christ could only accomplish our salvation as the agent of redemption if he was the eternal son of God. So, so what does it mean when the author of Hebrews in verse 4 says that he inherited his, his great name? Well, if you look at the quotes from Psalm 2, verse 7 and 2 Samuel seven fourteen, which, by the way, all these quotes are from the Septuagint. And, uh, and we'll talk about that and, and why that's important in just a minute. But, but those verse, these verses show that his sonship refers not only to Jesus as the eternal son of God, but to Jesus as the messianic son. He is the fulfillment of the promises given to David of the Messiah. So when Jesus was raised from the dead, God gave final approval of Jesus uh, as the Messiah who had perfectly fulfilled the law and had obediently endured the cross. And because Christ had done this, then God had bestowed upon Jesus the name Son of God, manifesting before all the world Christ's divine status as divine king. He is the king who sits on the throne of David forever and ever. He is the Messiah. Now, where do I get this from? I'm not just making this up. If you, if you turn to Acts chapter 13, verse 33, here again, I'll, I'll start with Acts 13, 32. Uh, Paul makes the point that I just made by quoting Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7, just like the writer of Hebrews does here. He says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You see, Paul is, shows us that the resurrection is evidence that Christ accomplished what the Messiah was to do. And as a result, he received the name, he inherited the name of the Son of God. And so Christ is as much superior to the angels as the name that he possesses. But he, he also, the Son, is superior because of his worship, as we see in verses 6 and 7. Since Christ has inherited the name Son, indicating his right to reign over the entire created universe, he is the one to whom the angels submit, he is the one that the angels revere, and he is the one that the angels worship. In, in verse 6 of Hebrews 1, the writer quotes from Psalm 97, it's 97.7, or it, it could also be from Deuteronomy 32.43. Either one sort of say the same thing. But he says in Hebrews 1, 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, the Septuagint states that God's angels are to worship him. And, and the reason I, I say the Septuagint, because if you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 97, verse 7, it's going to read a little bit different. Because our Old Testament is based upon the Hebrew text. And the Septuagint is the Greek uh, translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And in the Hebrew text, angels, uh, that word 
is is referred to as Elohim, okay, which can be translated gods. Now, uh, it's not that the Septuagint is playing fast and easy with the Hebrew text, but it but Elohim can be translated God, but it's also not an an uncommon Old Testament way of speaking of the angels as heavenly beings. And and so in its original context, the, the statement about the the uh, about uh, about let all gods gods or heavenly beings worship him, it's appropriate to uh, translate that angels. And 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 by the way, by the inclusion of this in God's word in, in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that that's the appropriate way to translate it. But but also in, in the original context of Psalm 97, uh, the statement about the angels bowing down to worship is in reference to Yahweh, who the writer of the Hebrews now uh, identifies as Jesus, showing us that Jesus is is God. And so the angels worship Christ. It's not Christ who worship the angels. And, and as we see oftentimes in the scriptures, but particularly in the book of Revelation, it is the angels who for, forever worship the Son, who is the lion and the lamb who sits upon his throne. And we're not going to take the time to turn there, but if you want to write down Revelation 5, 5 and 6, that sometimes is a passage that we use as a call to worship. Is It is a, it is a, a song of praise to the Son uh, by the angels. Now, notice that the writer of Hebrews says that the angels worship the Son because he is the firstborn. Uh, we need to be careful in translating this word, you know, that we don't uh, impose our interpretation on it. Because whenever we talk about a firstborn, we think of a firstborn as someone who refers to the oldest in the family, right? I am Rick Franks. I am the firstborn of my father and my mother. I'm the oldest, okay? And that's oftentimes how we, we use that word. And so some have sought to take that kind of meaning and impose it upon the text of Scripture and say, so, so therefore, you know, the teaching is, is that Christ is a created being. He was born. He actually came into existence. There was a time when he did not exist. But that's not, that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, others incorrectly think that this is a reference to Jesus being the first among created beings. Here again, that's not the correct translation. Uh, unlike the way we use that word, the term firstborn has nothing to do with time, like the oldest son. It really has to do with position. So the word uh, prototakos refers to one who has a special place of honor with his father and who shares in his father's authority. Um, I think maybe the best way to say it, it refers to one who is superior to all others. The one who is above all, the, the preeminent one. Maybe you've heard that term used of Christ. The one who possesses the right to rule. So the point seems to be uh, that Jesus' special status over all the created realm. And that's why the angels worship him. Now, now as we read this text, you may think that the writer's purpose is to sort of put angels down. And that's not true. I think as we come to this text, you need to bring to bear upon your mind all the greatness that the Bible talks about, about angels. 
uh, in verse 7. It's a quotation from Psalm 104, verse 4, that tells us that angels are great beings indeed. They're, they're created beings who resemble the wind and the lightning and who serve God. Uh, just as the wind and the fire and the lightning that accompanies a storm carries out the sovereign will of God our Creator, so angels minister to accomplish God's sovereign will. Some commentators even say that he uses that language of wind and lightning to show that they are quick to accomplish God's purpose. That they don't dilly-dally around. When God's will is, is known, they are quick to carry that out. And, and as you look and you think about what the Bible says about angels, they are um, awful creatures. And what, I use that word awful in the sense of great creatures, powerful creatures. One angel killed 70,000 Israelites on account of David's sin. You can read that in 2 Samuel 24:15 and following. Or, or one angel killed 185,000 soldiers in Sennacherib's army. Isaiah 37, 36. But as mighty as these angels are, they are infinitely below Jesus Christ. They are creatures that are here to do his bidding and to carry out his will. Therefore, they worship their creator. It was uh, God's command that they worship his son. And they do so to his delight. And brothers and sisters, as we come this morning, we need to take the hint from angels. They are not something to be worshipped. But we ought to do as they do and worship the Son. And so we see that, that Christ is greater than the angels. But he's also greater than the angels because of his superior throne as well as Son. In verses 8 and 9. It says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, this is a citation from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And, and what's so amazing about this quote from Psalm 45 is that it is a passage of God speaking to God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The end of that says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Um, we see here that God is speaking to God, and the throne that's inhabited by the Son is the throne of God and the Lamb, as we read in Revelation 22.1. And it is a throne that is established and will last forever. But, but I want you to notice that not only is Christ seated upon his throne, which we talk about all the time, and we think about him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but the, this psalm also underscores that God's kingdom is just. You know, now we live in a world where uh, sin abounds, and where there is evil, and where there is much injustice. But in Christ's rule, there's always justice. Uh, and the Bible talks about that. Isaiah uh, refers to that in Isaiah 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it 
and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. But see, we have to understand that because Christ's rule is, is just, it is, is, is righteous, that's what makes the cross necessary. If, if sinners are to be saved, there must be a means devised by God himself that meets the demands of his justice so that God can consistently, with his nature, justify sinners. And this means that the only means for the justification of sinners is the obedience and sacrifice of Jesus, God's own Son. In Him, the demands of the law of God are met and justice is thoroughly satisfied. And that's why it says, so that God might be, as Romans 3 says, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Him. And so the Son who reigns on the throne establishing uh, justice forever must be worshipped. And so as we come this morning, that is uh, a picture that we have in our minds of the Son. Just a couple more things that the writer of Hebrew talks about, about Christ's superiority. He, is the superior, he has a superior existence as the Son to that of the angels. Look at verses 10 and through 12. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and, you, and your years will have no end. You see, Jesus is the creator of all things, and all that we see around us in this material world, it's going to pass away one day. Uh, as he says, it will be like a garment that will be rolled up. And in contrast to this world that will pass away is the one who created all things and will never perish. And that's uh, the quote from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, where it speaks of the eternal existence of the Son in contrast to the transient nation of the universe uh, to show how Christ will, is eternal you see, the angels are part of that created order, but Jesus is not. Jesus is not part of the created order, but is Lord over all creation. And that the angels exist forever, but they do so only at the pleasure of Christ. I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but angels have no life in, in and of themselves, but they owe their existence to Christ, just like you and I do. I mean, I think we are reminded of that. Because we're getting older. Yesterday I celebrated my birthday. And by the way, thank you to many of you on Facebook that wished me a happy birthday. But, you know, it's evident we're getting older. And we know that death is coming. But, but we only exist because what Christ, who Christ is and what he has done for us. And even as we spend eternity in heaven, the whole reason we do so is not because of ourselves, but because Christ makes that possible. Therefore, it, it, it is insanity to consider any angel to be on the same level as Christ, let alone superior to him like the Hebrews did. Christ is the only one that is eternally existent. There was a time when angels did not exist, but the Son has always existed. And then finally, we see Christ's superior reign. 
uh, in verses 13 and 14. In the final words of this passage, the author concludes with the climactic words of Christ's absolute superiority and supremacy over all things. He goes, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool uh, for your feet? And, and here we see that Christ Jesus is confident. He is the confident victor and, and conqueror of all things. And, and notice that the author introduces this final quote from Psalm 110 uh, the same way he did the first quote in, the, in verse 5. It's really a rhetorical question. Um, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a f- footstool for your feet? And obviously the answer is none. He has not said that to any of the angels. But the author's point is that God did say this to his son. And, and Psalm 110 actually begins with the statement, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And therefore, we can say that this psalm tells us where Christ went when he left this earth into glory and what he's doing now. I think it's so easy for us to mistakenly think that Christ, when he left this work, that his, or when he left this earth, that, that his work was done. I mean, did he not say on the cross, it is finished? And that's true. His work of redemption was finished. But Christ continues to work on behalf of his creation and of his church, that he sustains all of creation, as we saw in the first verses of Hebrews chapter 1. We know that he answers the prayer of his saints, but he rules as well for the sake of his church, as we read in Ephesians 1, 22. Um, And and so the author uh, tells us this. We see it in verse 3, that Christ is seated on his throne, and he implies it again in verse 8. But, but if you look at to the book of Revelation, and we will look at a text this time, look at Revelation chapter 7, um, verse 9, Revelation 7, 9. Uh, John records visions of Christ seated upon his throne. And, and I want you to see the magnificent picture here of this. Revelation 7, verse 9 says, After this, I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. You see, all of these creatures are standing before the throne. But but Christ is seated. He's not seated because he's inactive, but instead it speaks of his power and his authority, as we talked about last week. And even now, Christ is busy on our behalf 
from his seat of divine authority. Never forget that, brothers and sisters. No matter what you go through in this life, no matter what you face, no matter what the news is that you hear about the persecuted church and the things that are happening, Christ is busy on the behalf of his church from his seat of divine authority. Evil may look like it is winning, but that is not true. As a matter of fact, we read here that he sits on his throne forever and he will be seated on the day when God will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. We've already seen that Jesus, when he came to this earth, uh, he made advancements into the ranks of his enemies. You know, he cast out demons. He healed the sick. You know, he humbled the proud. He cleansed the temple. All this while calling sinners to faith and repentance. And we know that Christ's enemies, you know, sin, Satan, and death, all these things will uh, submit themselves in defeat at his feet, along with the angels who fled heaven to follow Satan. This is the sure future. God will prevail and he will reign forever and ever. But even now his enemy is a defeated enemy. And the author wants his readers to fully realize the greatness of Christ. You know, he, and he does this by comparing Christ to angels. However, the author also wants his readers to realize the role of angels. In verse 14, um, he repeats again that the angels are servants. How, he describes them, look, as ministering spirits who are sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That means that they are sent out by the enthroned Christ to serve us. I hope you find comfort in that this morning. When we see that the Son's place is on his throne, while the angel's place is to stand before him, we need to exalt Christ in our understanding to realize that he is, is great. And as Christians, I, I hope this morning that we can see how glorious is our Lord. How exalted is Christ, our priest and our prophet and our king upon his throne. And we need to be aware of our tendency to fail to live in all of Jesus. And it's my prayer this morning that it, it would be that, that his greatness would be impressed upon our hearts and, and, and as, you, as you hear this, and as you, as you are impressed with his greatness, that you would hear the exhortation that comes repeatedly in Hebrews, don't drift. Don't drift in your faith. If these Hebrew Christians had kept their minds fixed here on the truths of chapter 1, and that we read throughout Hebrews, they would not have been tempted to drift. On the contrary, they would have lived their lives before Christ's throne. All right. And so this morning, as we think about that, I want to ask you, are you tempted to drift into a formalized religiosity when it comes to Christ? Are, are, are you tempted to drift into a formalized religiosity when it comes to Christ that, that views him as aloof and distant in your daily life? If you keep your mind filled with the truths of this chapter, and if your affections are drawn toward your majestic Lord, how low is the possibility that you will drift in your faith? 
fix your gaze on your exalted great high priest and king. Along those lines, do you rest on Christ's omnipotence, his all-powerfulness every day in your life? Jesus Christ, our Lord, rules and he reigns, carrying creation to its appointed end. We talked this morning in Sunday school about how God has a purpose in his salvation. He is carrying it out to an end. It will happen. His purposes will be accomplished, both as to his essence and his office. Christ is transcendently great. And because of that, the angels worship him. God has established Jesus as the mediator upon his throne who reigns by his father's ordination. As Psalm 2 says, that God has set his king. He has placed his son upon his throne. And in Isaiah 46, 10, the Lord says, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Brothers and sisters, Christ is no longer in the tomb. God has promised the ultimate victory to his people and ultimate success for Christ's kingdom. Christ has been given dominion over the nations. The world belongs to Christ, our mediator. Christ didn't enter this world to be defeated. He came to crush Satan's head, to purchase his people from sin, and to restore this fallen world. And Christ will defend his church and carry out his purposes through you. Do these truths encourage you? Do you take that preached word home with you? Do you take it to work with you? Do you take it as you talk to your neighbors? You will be encouraged to the extent that you are preoccupied with the glory of God and the grandeur of Jesus Christ. The more you dwell upon those things, the more your heart will be raised to heaven. You know, it reminds me of the hymn writer who wrote the hymn. It's actually page number 252 in the Psalter hymnal that we use. The last verse says, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven will be one. No one can overthrow Jesus' omnipotence. The angels worship Christ and bow before him to do his will. Will you do that this morning? Will you exalt him in your affections all that you can? Will you find your ways of, and to see him as the exalted Christ to be worshipped and to live in him each and every day? Please bow your heads if you would this morning. Lord Jesus, as we come today, we may not be tempted to worship angels. We might be impressed by them, but we, we are not in such awe that we are in temptation of most likely lifting them higher than we ought. But the truth is that we are, are guilty of not being in all of you 
and recognizing you for your position and who you truly are. And for that, we ask for your forgiveness. And we pray that this week, in the midst of, of all the things that go on in our daily lives and the things that are pressing in upon us, oh God, may you bring to mind the greatness of Christ. Lord, may, we, may you bring to mind the things that we heard this day. And may you stir our hearts and our affections, Lord, to, to, to love you more, uh, to exalt you. Oh God, may we be lifted up, you know, to recognize that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And may we worship you as you deserve and to live our lives accordingly, not fearful, not worried, not overcome by the things that are pressing in around us, but knowing that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords and bringing and casting all of our cares upon you. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.